This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. I'm Leslie Hankson from the League of Conservation Voters. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Today, our guest is Josh Syme from USC Dornsife. Josh recently published Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering with the University of California Press. Today, EMTs and Society. Our discussion was recorded on February 25th, 2020. Today, we're sitting down with Josh Syme from USC Dornsife. Josh recently published Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering with University of California Press. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. So first of all, before we start off, I love the setup of the book and the preface. Uh, and I thought you could maybe launch us with that. Tell us about the origins of uh, uh, Bandage, Sort, and Hustle. Yeah, well, so the, the preface starts with me summarizing um, an interview I had with a recently released prisoner in Oregon. So before I studied ambulances, before I was even interested in medical sociology, I was studying punishment, incarceration, prison release. I still study those things, but that was where my focus was primarily. And I was interviewing this man outside of uh, his transitional housing. So I initially, his name is James, at least I call him James in the book. And I met him in prison when I was doing interviews behind bars and I was following up with some of the guys who I had interviewed um, in prison. And I was following up with, with James outside of um, his transitional housing unit. We were inside of a Burger King. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, just asking him how things were going. He told me that he just hated his living conditions. He just hated the transitional housing unit he was in. He told me that people were, you know, fighting and stealing from one another. And what I thought was really interesting is he was trying to provide me evidence with how terrible the facility was. I was convinced he didn't need to provide me with very much evidence, but he was nevertheless trying to provide me with evidence. He told me that the ambulance is always there. So at least like twice a week, ambulance crews are constantly rushing in there. Well, not constantly, twice a week, at least in a noticeable frequency. We're rushing into transitional housing unit, you know, for people's overdoses or fights or whatever. And I just, that conversation just really stuck with me for a long period of time. About I, I just didn't really understand what was going on. I was like, why is the ambulance always at this facility? And why is the ambulance so present at this transitional housing facility? And I just started to notice the ambulance a bit more after that conversation. I noticed it in you know, some of my favorite urban sociology texts. I noticed it in Elijah Anderson's Go to the Street. I noticed it in Matt Desmond's Evicted and in uh, Forrest Stewart's book. And, you know, if you've read these books, you would, of course, be forgiven if you have no memory of the ambulance being in it. I mean, it just shows up in the background. I mean, the ambulance is kind of a background prop and its crews are cast as extras and somebody else's drama. But it was popping yeah. up and it wasn't until I, you know, had this conversation with this man who lived in, you know, in, in very marginalized part of the city was also saying. And so I thought that there could be something interesting there. So that really spawned my interest into, you know, looking into the sociology of ambulances and found that there was some research, particularly in the 80s and 90s, that was really interesting about kind of work culture and um, and things like that. But there wasn't much about, there basically wasn't like an urban sociology of ambulances. And so that was the gap I wanted to fill. Now, in truth, I mean, there's other reasons why I thought the ambulance was interesting. I mean, that's the origin story that's detailed in the book. That's its kind of primary origin story. But at the same time, there's a lot of other interesting things that were happening in the news with ambulances that I thought would be an interesting, you know, all those conversations about filling. There's all these conversations about 
um, help-seeking reluctancies amongst people towards the bottom of urban hierarchies. So that there was a lot going on that suggested that this could be a promising project. So you encourage us not just to see EMTs, emergency services, as a transportation service that brings people to the hospital, but also as an institution that sort of serves a social function. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, so I make the argument in the book that the ambulance helps to govern urban suffering. I I should probably clarify real quick what I mean by urban suffering and the governance of urban suffering. So, you know, in no way am I trying to suggest that people who dwell in cities live in absolute or permanent misery. They don't. In fact, there's a lot of sociological research to suggest that people who live in cities tend to be happier than those who do not live in cities on average. And the public health scholarship mentions something called an urban health advantage. So I'm not denying these things, but all human settlements contain suffering. And we've long known that that suffering tends to concentrate towards the bottom of economic and racial hierarchies within cities, be it mental suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, financial suffering. It just tends to concentrate towards the bottom of these hierarchies. And that's not news in the book, right? That is not the novelty of this book. We've known this for a long time. We've known about it since the writings of Frederick Engels, W.B. Du Bois, to Jane Addams, the Chicago School of Sociology, and onward. It's like saying the book, suffering seems to obey a kind of social gravity. Something in the social cosmos tends to push or to pull suffering towards the bottom of these complex urban hierarchies. And I'm particularly interested in the governance of urban suffering. And by the governance of urban suffering, I'm just referring to how state or state-delegated institutions, so including things like nonprofit organizations and various civil society groups that might be delegated out by the state, how they tend to manage or to regulate or to otherwise just handle those populations that bear the brunt of suffering in the economically and racially polarized city. Yeah, so I mean, this book is, you know, interested in the governance of urban suffering. So of course, it's in conversation with, you know, medical sociology, emergency medicine, and things like that. But it's also in conversation with other case studies that are relevant for this broad understanding of the governance of urban suffering. So I'm in conversation with scholars who study parole offices, probation offices, welfare offices, and so on. So I'm trying to make the case that the ambulance is an important institution in this space, kind of on the front lines for governing suffering populations in a variety of ways. And in short, I make the argument that the ambulance helps to um, contribute to this governance in three ways. First, the ambulance helps to bandage suffering bodies. So it offers simple and superficial solutions to deep and complicated structural problems. The ambulance also helps to sort suffering bodies, helping to distribute them within and across an array of institutions. And then the ambulance helps to hustle suffering bodies, um, rushing them through periods of intervention, not necessarily toward interventions. People can still wait a long time. I'm not necessarily disputing that research, but from the standpoint of workers, they're hustling and they're rushing people through interventions. And they're often doing this in the name of organizational efficiency, or in some cases, in the name of profit. Can you give us something that you saw from your field work that you feel really exemplifies this this role that uh, ambulances play? Like where something you saw where you're like, wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had never been in an ambulance until I did this project. So, you know, one of the first things I needed to do was just to make sense of what was going on in the backs of ambulances. Like when I first got there, that was basically the first task. I had some intuitions about what was happening back there. Most of them were incorrect. I had like this Hollywood fantasy about ambulances were doing, and most of that stuff was, um, you know, thrown out the window. I mean, my dissertation proposal was pretty much obsolete after one week in the field. 
Um, so I wanted to understand what was happening in the backs of ambulances. And, you know, you know, the truth is we could summarize what ambulance crews do in a number of different ways. We could summarize it as care work. We could summarize it as service work. But in the book, I prefer to call what they do people work. And so I'm drawing from Irving Goffman, who developed this term when writing asylums, make sense of the labor of staff inside total institutions. I really think it works for any occupation where the material that is worked upon by, by labor is people. And I wanted to understand what these people workers were doing. They basically face an infinite wave of suffering clientele. And the suffering that they see is incredibly diverse. And there's a ton of variation, right? So it's hard for me to give like a single event, a single call and say, this encapsulates perfectly or even kind of somewhat captures the general rhythms of ambulance work because there's so much variation. But in the book, I emphasize one important axis of distinction that workers have that they use to make sense of the variations in their caseload. And so they make a distinction between what they call legit calls and then what they call bullshit calls. So the legit calls are the so-called real emergencies that kind of necessitate and justify the craft of paramedicine. So these are calls that have crews, you know, making relatively deep clinical interventions into the body, doing intubations, chest compressions, things like that. And then the bullshit calls are the so-called non-emergencies, the calls that don't involve much of a clinical intervention beyond a simple transport to the hospital. So I could give you a couple of examples of how we Please, do yeah. play out. So in the book, to, to summarize how these legit calls work, I summarize a case of two critically injured men who I call Saul and Manuel. And so Saul is you know, mid-20s Latino male. He gets into a fight with a couple of guys outside of his apartment complex. It's never clear to me why he gets into a fight with these guys. I wasn't on scene at this point particular time as an ethnographer, but according to bystanders who were there at the time, uh, Saul gets in a fight with these guys uh, for unknown reasons, but these guys apparently beat him to the ground and they strike him multiple times in the head with a metal pipe. And Manuel, Saul's father, is upstairs in the apartment, so he hears this commotion. He runs downstairs to rescue his son. He, you know, apparently is able to fight these guys off and lift Saul up off the ground and they begin to make their retreat back to the apartment complex, at which point one of the men that was beating Saul draws a pistol, aims high and squeezes the trigger. And he ends up squeezing the trigger at just the moment in which Manuel is running up the exterior steps of the apartment complex and he ends up catching the bullet in the groin. Now, by the time ambulance crews arrived on scene, two ambulance crews, one for Saul, one for Manuel, me as a ride-along. We find these guys in the apartment complex. Manuel, well, I should say Saul was in the kitchen vomiting, a sign of severe head trauma would make sense from being struck in the head with a metal pipe. And Manuel was sitting on the couch, literally soaking the cushions in blood. And these were, you know, high intensity cases. Both these men had to be rushed to the hospital. And the case of Manuel was particularly concerning because the ambulance crew was able to plug his gunshot wound and prevent him from bleeding out of his body. But they couldn't do much with the fact that he was bleeding into his body mm -hmm. um, and his blood pressure was dropping. He was clearly going into shock. And so the paramedic had to respond swiftly and, and confidently by administering a significant amount of saline uh, via IV treatment to lift his blood pressure and performed a, some potentially other life-saving interventions en route to the hospital. And at the end of this call, both of these ambulance crews, again, two crews, one for Saul and one for Manuel, were at the in the ambulance bay at the trauma center laughing, celebrating. And at first appearances, it seemed like a really gross celebration of urban violence, but that's not what it was at all. It was a celebration of the vocation. It was a celebration of the craft of paramedicine. If this was a case that had them doing what they were trained to do and what they signed up to do and what they want to do. And to mm -hmm. have them 
salvage bodies in crisis through a particular skill set that they were trained to do. Now, this case can be contrasted, and I contrast in the book, with another case for a woman who I call Denise. Denise is a Black woman in her mid-50s. She calls 911 uh, relatively often. She is what is referred to in the literature as a super utilizer of 911 services, or what people in the field more colloquially would call a frequent flyer. Yeah. And on this particular night, uh, Denise called 911 because she had some burning sensation in her chest. But the ambulance crew that responded to her, they already, they, the name of patients does not show up on the NRIG computer that shows where you should go. Only the address shows up. They knew by just seeing her address, they knew who this was. They're like, oh, fuck, it's Denise, right? And so they have to respond. And then, um, you know, Denise has this burning sensation in her chest. But Denise's sister, who is living with her, says that what she thinks is going on here is that Denise is just off of her psych meds and, and is trying to get to the emergency department for unknown reasons, perhaps to get prescription refills or something like that. Right, right. The crew is just unimpressed with this, right? They don't want to take her to the hospital. But there's this issue of entitled access. Everybody who wants an ambulance can get one, more or less, pretty much anywhere in this country. If you want an ambulance right now, you just pick up the phone, you dial 911, articulate some type of medical problem, and the state, at multiple levels, promises you an ambulance, and more often than not, it will deliver on that promise. But you'll have to pay for it, and so there's all these things with fee-for-service, so it's, you know, it's access at a cost, but there is this issue of kind of entitled access, kind of like the emergency department. So Denise is insistent, take me to the hospital. The crew has to take her to the hospital. They get her inside the rig. They check her blood pressure. She has a chest complaint, so they do an EKG. They collect other vital signs, and they say, look, objectively, there just is no medical emergency. Your vital signs are within normal limits. Your uh, EKG checks out with a normal rhythm. But Denise is nevertheless insistent, take me to the hospital. And so they take her to the hospital. They argue with her en route. Denise is a low-priority case, so she has to wait a significant amount of time before she gets a bed at the hospital, about 30, 40 minutes. And... The ambulance crew, they can't just leave her like in the hallway of the hospital. They have to wait until she has a bed and an assigned nurse that they can sign over care to. And so they continue to argue with her while they're waiting for this bed. Um, and eventually she gets a bed uh, and, you know, as they're continuing to argue about the uh, legitimacy of her suffering. And when they get uh, her to a bed, the nurse uh, greets Denise and Denise tells the ambulance or tells the nurse that this ambulance crew just wants me to die. And at which point the paramedic comes and whispers into my ear that she would all be doing us a favor. <laughs> so she was accurate, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And so there is, you know, a lot that you know, separates these types of cases. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the legit case of Solomon Manuel's injuries and the so-called bullshit case of Denise's uh, right. chest complaint. But I argue in the book that despite the fact that those are incredibly different types of cases involve incredibly different types of work, that they largely amount to something very simple, and that is the bandaging of suffering bodies. So whether or not you're plugging a gunshot wound and rushing them to the hospital, or whether you are simply transporting somebody to the hospital who is locked out of primary care or something and, and needs access to prescription refills or needs access to emergency medicine for whatever reason, ambulance crews mm. are basically just offering bandaged solutions, be it for these so-called legit calls or these so-called bullshit calls. So in the book, this means situating my ethnography within a larger literature on the social roots of suffering and the social roots of sickness. So I'm you know, very confident that when I was with ambulance crews that I was deployed with them very, very far downstream in a long causal river that links macro structure to personal suffering. Mm -hmm. And ambulance crews are not given the tools or the instruments. They're not given even the interests or the motivations, you know, let alone even the opportunities 
to target the root causes of people's suffering. They're only given instruments to basically offer quick bandage solutions to their suffering. And this holds up, I think, as a general statement, holds up whether you're talking about, you know, these legit calls or these bullshit calls. And so that is in the book what I do to try to tie that variation uh, together. You you see this uh, distinction with other um, emergency responder professions. I kind of remember in undergrad mm-hmm. reading something. I want to say it was by John Van Manen, but it was an ethnography mm-hmm. of cops. Yeah, and they had a very similar uh, distinction. Mm-hmm. Yes, and there's you know there's shared language, right? I mean sometimes there's a mismatch in the terms that they're using, but you know there's many times as an EMT, I should say that this research involved two years of field work. My first year I worked as, or I didn't work. I was just a ride along. I was just there as a kind of, you know, a sort of fly on the wall, or at least an attempted fly on the wall. I just basically watched people work. And then the second year of field work, I worked as an EMT at this, at this company in this unnamed California County that I study. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me as an EMT to step out of the rig and, and see somebody that, that the police were interacting with and the police would say something along the lines of, oh, this is just a bullshit call. Mm-hmm. And so they share that language and certainly nurses um, share that language too. But there can be some mismatches, right? So sometimes what police see as bullshit is not necessarily the same things that ambulance crews see as bullshit. So, you know, a couple of events that stick out in my mind are one time we responded to somebody who was wasn't fully unconscious, but was certainly not alert and oriented in their car. And the police just assumed that this person was drunk. And so when we came out, they're like, this bullshit call, this dude's just drunk. And then the paramedic upon, you know, a more accurate assessment of his problem determined Mm -hmm. that this was not actually just drunk or intoxication. This person was likely having a stroke or some type of a brain bleed Mm. in the rush of the hospital for that reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they do share this language, but sometimes the terminology does not equally match up. And I will say, mm-hmm. in no way in the book am I suggesting that that is the main point of the book, or that I'm trying to reveal that distinction. I think it exists even in medical sociology well before what I'm writing. So Howard Becker was making these distinctions in his piece, and I think it was in Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, I think in the early 90s, that he wrote a piece about how I learned what a crock was. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about some of his medical ethnography and about how physicians and other clinicians tried to determine basically the legitimacy of people's suffering inside clinical settings. And it maps on almost exactly to the types of things that I was seeing in my field work. They just weren't calling them crocs. They were calling it bullshit cases. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, cops. Um, and I, I have not read the book, but I have read the AJS. Uh, or was ASR or AJS? ASR. ASR, yeah. I read the ASR where um, you know a big part of the action is about you know, you have these cases where they're not quite a crime, they're not quite a medical emergency, but clearly they can't be happening. And the mm-hmm. cops are arguing with the paramedics about who's going to deal with this. So, you know, it seems like there it's not just that they're operating in parallel, but there's a certain amount of contestation. And I'd imagine that that's mostly over the bullshit calls. Yes. Yeah. So the second part of the book, which is about the sorting of bodies, deals with these lateral relationships between different frontline workers, the relationships between ambulance crews and their nurse and police counterparts, you know, nurses Mm -hmm. at hospitals and police on the streets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I argue in the book and I, you know, I kind of remind the readers a few times that I'm not trying to suggest that this is like a war zone on the front lines. I'm not trying to suggest that ambulance crews and police hate each other, or that they're constantly fighting, or that ambulance crews and nurses hate each other, that they're fighting all the time. Nevertheless, there is a fair amount of tension on these front lines. You know, it's not just concord and and solidarity, there's a fair amount of conflict and struggle. 
And so I spend a lot of time examining these struggles. I mean, in part because I think the struggles are strategic. They help reveal the boundaries and what's at stake between these groups. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are many forms of struggle between um, all of these different parties. So there's, you know, I detail them in the book, but the main one that I highlight is what I call burden shuffling. And it is over these so-called bullshit calls. Because I should, I should say that most of the calls are on the bullshit end of the continuum. Yeah, sure. So overwhelming, <laughs> like 60%, right? So I actually have a coding scheme because I have over 100,000 medical records from this organization. And, uh, you know, I map this coding scheme onto the, the folk terminology that's used in the field about legit and bullshit. And I'm happy to talk about that as well. But I'm yeah. confident that most of these calls are closer to the bullshit end of the continuum. And that's also what the cop ethnography shows, right? That 90% yes. of what cops do is not real police work. You know. Yes, and that's it's frustrating for them as people who care about their craft and care about their vocation. There is this kind of denial of your craft, and it is very similar to what people are finding in the policing research. And you're right that what they're typically arguing over is these, you know, these so-called bullshit calls. Mm -hmm. And so it is over this issue of burden shuffling. So burden shuffling for me just refers to when one worker or a set of worker attempts to push or to shuffle some undesirable task or case onto another worker. And so we can see this burden shuffling happening between the ambulance crews and nurses because ambulance crews will strategically take patients and nurses at particular hospitals that they think will somehow make their shift easier. But we can also see between the ambulance crews and the police. And it's one in which the police are usually shuffling the undesirable task or case onto the worker. So, you know, police will usually arrive on scene first as somebody who is drunk or, or disordered. And well, for example, let me just describe what they do for like drunk or, or public intoxication issues right so right. what will often happen is you know the police will arrive on on scene first um either because they stumble upon a drunk person who is in a bush or on a sidewalk or in a hotel lobby they'll either stumble upon them on their patrol or somebody will have dialed 911 and activated the police there in a similar way to like what chris herring calls complaint oriented policing right yeah well that'd be 311 like a lot of what Her Herring talks about is three one one. Yeah, but I yeah. still think that um, in I, I still think you can see complaint oriented policing through nine one one because people are dying nine one one. They're saying there's this drunk person on the street. Sure. Yeah, you're right in terms of the yeah. mechanisms that he outlines. But yeah, I think it's still consistent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the police will you know arrive on scene first, and you know in many of those cases the police could you know at least theoretically criminalize the event, right? Public intoxication. It's against mm -hmm. the law. So they could probably handle it in a punitive manner, either taking the person to jail or they could mm -hmm. fine them or somehow coercively push them out of the area. But in my experience, with somebody from the ambulance, the police are much more likely not to criminalize these events, but to medicalize them, to suggest that mm -hmm. such a person is sick and that they should go to the hospital for the night. So they'll summon an ambulance crew to take them to the hospital. Now, the ambulance crew typically doesn't want them because if their only problem is that they're drunk, they're not going to be seen as a legit medical case or a, a, a case that warrants the use of ambulance services. So the police will mm -hmm. try to prevent the police from just, or I'm sorry, the ambulance crew will try to prevent the police from just trying to shuffle these undesirable intoxicated subjects into the ambulance. And their primary way in do that, doing that is to demedicalize events. So this weird thing where, or where the police are trying to you know, medicalize people's problems, which is something that we don't typically expect the police to do. And then you have actual medical workers trying to demedicalize the problem. So you'll have, you know, they'll, they'll mm. summon an ambulance uh, to handle this drunk person, and then the ambulance crew will hook them up to a monitor, check their vital signs. Like, look, objectively, there just is no medical emergency here. They might ask some questions to determine that the person is alert and oriented to time, place, person, event. They might say this person is alert and oriented, can make their own medical decisions. We don't recommend that this person, you know, goes to the hospital. And then the person will be like, yeah, I don't want to go to the hospital. And 
those events usually don't pan out very favorably for ambulance crews because the police are just usually able to draw a weapon that ambulance crews do not have, and that's the threat of incarceration. So what you usually have, and I have this documented in, in some of the medical records I examined as well, the police will just at that point say, okay, well, do you want to go to the hospital tonight or do you want to go to jail? And when somebody's you know yeah. presented with that option, they're usually yeah. going to select the hospital. And because this issue of entitled access, once somebody says, okay, I want to go to the hospital, then the ambulance crew has to take them. So there's this weird right. thing where ambulance crews and police, when they try to negotiate what to do with undesirable subjects and these kind of vocationally unfulfilling tasks, will try to cite protocol and, and try to figure out a, a, a way to, you know, figure out how, how somebody should be essentially sorted into um, the institution. Are they going to go to the hospital? If so, which hospital do they go to? If they don't go to the hospital, do they potentially go to jail or something like that? Yeah, I was going to say, it's like if a student has a dumb idea for a senior thesis, I say, oh, you should go work with the English department. <laughs> like, if you work with me, you get suspended, and the English department has to take you. you know? I just want to follow up on just sort of like the thread of the conversation we're having before Gabriel cracked us up. But yeah, this reminds me that, you know, this is this is basically a labor centric analysis, right? That's, this is, this is how, this is how you're going through the entirety of the book is with this sort of labor centered lens. And the question that I have for you is, you know, one of the things that um, always stuck in the back of my head throughout reading the book is the fact that this is a for-profit ambulance service. And I'm wondering whether or not you can tell us, you know, sort of your thoughts about, about how like sort of that context actually changes the labor, right? And then changes, you know, the bandaging, the sorting, right? And the hustling. Yeah, good question. So you're right. It is a labor-centric analysis. And in this particular case, I mean, it is a uh, focused case study. It happens to be that this is a private ambulance company that holds 911 contracts throughout the country, but I'm focusing on its operations in one particular county. And you're right. So I, I think if this were, say, a public operation, say like the Los Angeles Fire Department or something like that, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that a lot of the same mechanisms are at play. Because even in these public operations, the name of the game might not be profit, or that might not at least be the explicit name of the game. But these organizations and management of these organizations are still primarily focused uh, you know, they're trying to do things like you know, they'll, they'll have different missions. So instead of a, a mission of, of profit, the mission will be of organizational efficiency or fiscal responsibility <laughs> or something like that. That helps to motivate some of these similar processes. And whether you're talking about a, a public ambulance or a private ambulance, so it's talking about something like the company I study or if you're talking about something like the Los Angeles Fire Department, they tend to all run, most of them, on a fee for service revenue model. That's not always the prime, you know, it's not always the only stream of, of revenue that these organizations get, but it's often the case that that is a primary stream of revenue. And so when you're running on a fee for service revenue model and you're trying to minimize loss and trying to run efficiency, you know, or trying to, to gain profit if you're a private company, the best strategy to do that, I argue, from management standpoint, is to intensify the exploitation of workers, to try to mm -hmm. increase the amount of surplus that you can appropriate from your workforce. And so for ambulances, this really means trying to increase a transport to crew ratio. They have ambulance crews run through as many billable transports as they possibly can within a single shift. And we see these pressures to motivate and to increase these transport to crew ratios happening within 
public and private operations. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that there is no important you know, differences between public and private ambulances or public and private frontline institutions that are managing a variety of problems. I think there are important differences. You know, in my opinion, ambulances should be publicly run rather than privately run. If those are the two options that we face, private or public ambulances, we should choose public because there's enough evidence to suggest that there's better patient care. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's better for workers, particularly in terms of the compensation they get and, and, and overall working conditions. But I just am not all that convinced that the solution here is just to turn ambulances into public operations when I think a lot of these mechanisms are still at play within those institutions. So for me, and thinking about the case that I look at, I think that the role of capital and the role of this being a private operation helps to just clarify the particular mechanisms of what I'm calling hustling bodies. I still think that you have this in these public operations, but I think when it's a company that's self-consciously and explicitly focused on increasing profit, that it becomes a manifest feature of the organization and becomes relevant here. But I'm confident that if you looked at public operations, that you're going to see a lot of these same mechanisms at play. And it would still be relevant to look at it from a labor-centric standpoint. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that you fo- that you mentioned hustle, you focus on hustle, because that was, that was precisely, right, you know, the, the one of the three that I was thinking, hmm, if we were looking at public versus private, might that be the one in which you would see, I mean, it, I, I, I believe that all three exist, right, but the, I would think that the intensity, there would be some kind of difference, and I'm trying to figure out, like, because I've never been in your shoes, whether that difference would be qualitative or quantitative in terms of that specific function. Like that's intuitively what, what I was wanting to focus on. Yeah. So I think in private operations, you know, again, my data can't answer this question, you know, very directly. So this is a, much of this is a speculation, but I'm always happy I love to speculate. speculation. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And I think what happens is that when it's a privately contracted company like this, the hustling is more intense because mm-hmm. the company has, you know, is, in some sense, they're focused on profit and they have more to lose if they don't make the profit. They don't have as much of a cushion as, say, like a public operation has. And those public operations will have much of a cushion either in terms of they have losses. But it's certainly more high stakes that you need to rush through as many billable transports and try to increase that transport to crew ratio when you're running a private company. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of this, these mechanisms of what I'm calling bandaging and sorting, I think the difference would probably mostly matter in terms of the types of interventions you could make into the institution of the ambulance. So, you know, one potential intervention that you could make into the ambulance to make it better meet demand on the ground, to better meet the populations that request its services, is to expand the scope of what ambulances can provide and to introduce Mm -hmm. maybe some social work-related functions into the ambulance. And I suspect that that would be better received within public ambulance services, mm-hmm. although I wouldn't say necessarily welcomed with open arms, but it would be mm-hmm. better received there than in uh, a private company where the private company is, you know, mostly focused on trying to increase this transport to crew ratio so that they can churn out a profit and, and, and benefit off the contract that they've secured. Mm-hmm. Josh, when you've walked away from this whole experience uh, on the, you know, on the front lines with EMT, how has this whole experience sort of changed your view of, you know, American society or the human condition? Like, what are the big lessons you're walking away from with this after this experience? 
It's a great institution to peer into if you want to understand urban inequality and the management of the suffering that tends to concentrate towards the bottom of, of hierarchies. Um, you know, this exposed me to a lot of spaces and places that I would have never encountered in my life any other way. And I think it has showed me, I think it's a great case for studying the state's kind of reactionary and often superficial responses to deep and complicated structural problems. So, you know, it is interesting. I mean, we always talk about like the state abandoning poor and otherwise marginalized populations. You know, if somebody's laying on the street in agony, somebody will come, somebody will eventually come, but it's always a kind of reactionary force just to take them into the hospital and to kind of quickly stabilize them. And I think you see this trend across a number of welfare-oriented programs today. This, you know, welfare is not just so-called disciplinary. It's often reactionary, like emergency housing, you know, short-term cash assistance. I think, you know, as I say in the book, we live in an era that we might be able to describe as kind of ambulance welfare, in which a lot of our services and programs have this kind of reactionary, short-term function, very, very downstream rather than uh, upstream interventions. So it's like you, you feel like it's... Uh sort of a disinvestment of preventative types of measures insofar as social problems are concerned. Yes. But like the costs never go away. You can ignore the social problem, but it will end up being soaked up by a different institution further down the line as the problem gets exacerbated. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we're seeing this in policing and emergency medicine and emergency departments more generally, right? And so like when thinking about policy solutions, um, you know, this isn't really a policy book. I'm not really... Too interested in specifying specific policy interventions that I would like to see, but I do specify some potential movements for change or directions for change that would be inspired by the analysis. And one of them obviously has to be to increase the social safety net outside of the ambulance so that people are not becoming so desperate and so wounded that they have to turn to one of the very few institutions that's promised to them, the ambulance. So I would like to see you know, a series of, of increases to the social safety net that would help to prevent people from, you know, turning to the ambulance for either legit or bullshit reasons. But at the same time, I think we should make some transformations to the ambulance to better meet demand on the ground, including introducing perhaps some kind of social work functions and things like that inside the rig. You've been listening to the Annex, the sociology podcast. Special thank you to Josh Syme from USC Dornsife. Josh recently published Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering with the University of California Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hickson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.